Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What's good, Internet? It's sometime during the holidays, and you're listening to Waypoint Radio. I'm your host, Rob Zachney, and I'm joined by Gita Jackson. Hello, I'm Gita. And our producer, Ricardo Contreras. Hello. And we are going to be talking about Aaron Sorkin's Magical Autumn. Uh, So, this fall, uh, Aaron Sorkin returned to... The cultural news, at least, with with two things uh, that released, I think, within a few weeks of each other. The first was a uh, get out the vote special that he and the cast of The West Wing put on in advance of the election. Uh, The When We All Vote West Wing special, where they did a live reading of Hartsfield's Landing, an episode from The West Wing uh, that, that takes place as the first uh, votes are being cast in a primary in New Hampshire. Then he also released a movie for Netflix called The Trial of the Chicago 7. And that is about, well, I mean, it's about the title. But Gita, you want to give the the precis, the setup for Trial of the Chicago 7? It's about the trial of Abby Hoffman and some um, other less well-known leftist activists uh, for inciting a riot at the 1967 Chicago Democratic Convention, um, where it was uh, widely known as being an absolute circus that lasted for months uh, based on trumped-up charges completely made up by the government. Uh, and uh, Aaron Sorkin has an interpretation of those events. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think, you know, Gita, I think the last time we talked about Aaron Sorkin, we were talking about... Uh, his To Kill a Mockingbird productions. And I think we both had a feeling that this is a guy who on one level, senses times have changed, that like the politics have shifted and that some of his assumptions about how the world worked have since been disproven since he started his very long career in writing these very Mm -hmm. civic minded uh, works of entertainment. And yet, He's also Aaron Sorkin, and to a degree, he's a middle-aged boomer who can, or at least Xer, who can only mm-hmm. change his spots so much, uh, and yes. still like will return to like center-left modes of thought. And I think, in the light of that arc and where he's at in his relationship to contemporary politics, both of these things become interesting for different reasons. Um, yes, West Wing is probably the apogee of his political worldview. It is about like how awesome was the Clinton administration, how awesome is neoliberal, uh, progressive neoliberalism. Uh, mm-hmm. The good times will never end. And 
Trial of the Chicago Seven is very much about trying to find justice in a increasingly authoritarian state and the tension between um, radical politics and progressive institutionalist politics. But you see, Aaron Sorkin is also a, a messy bitch who lives for drama, who can't help but put his own personal beefs <laughs> into all of the work that he's ever done. Um, the particular episode of The West Wing that they do in the live special doesn't feature this necessarily. It is actually a very well-written episode, one of my favorite episodes of the series. And I, it was very interesting to see it with the older versions of the cast, especially Dulé Hill. Um but it's but in other aspects, there's a whole episode where Aaron Sorkin just calls out fan fiction writers. And it, that's yes. just like the whole episode of the show. And it's very weird. It's bad whenever any television show or movie does this. Don't do it. It makes everybody feel fucking weird. Um, and like a lot of the trial, the Chicago seven has a lot of very complicated issues that we will get into in depth. I promise you. But yeah. For a large part of this movie, for at least the first two thirds, are a weird little movie about wanting Chapo Trap House to call you cool. (laughs) That's just like, he hates podcasters and he casts certain figures, certain historical figures in that movie as leftist podcasters. And that is really what the movie is about. That's a really interesting point. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so let's talk about the special real quick because this was something I was fully prepared to dunk on. And here's the problem. I loved the West Wing growing up. I might still love the West Wing. I understand all the reasons it's bad, but I was watching this thing and I was like, "Uh oh, I am feeling a connection to this thing. This thing is resonating in a way I was not fully expecting it to work. I think it helps that it's a pretty cool thing they did. They shot an episode of the West Wing with the actors reprising their roles uh, in a in a theater with very stripped down sets and it is on one level just kind of a cool experience seeing all these actors, including the bit players who are on the West wing reprising their roles. Like the, you will recognize reporters from the, the pool. Uh, you know, they return to be reporters in this, in this production. Um, it's just, it's neat seeing these characters again. It's also for me, like a thing that really struck me is how good this cast is at playing these characters. Even after not seeing them for many years, I haven't watched the West Wing since I lived in Chicago. So it's at least three years for me. Um, And this is after really it being a comfort show for quite a long time. Uh, Seeing this cast of characters back together, the chemistry is immediate. They slip back into these characters like absolutely no time has passed. Even when it's weird that like Dulé Hill is so much older and no longer convincingly an aide, <laughs> like it still feels like you still understand the sort of natural positions that all these characters are in. It definitely makes the way that he gets hazed and then weirdly hazes CJ Craig in this episode feel slightly more problematic. Um, but that was like one of the only complaints I have. I mean, I, so I skipped all the celebrity, uh, confessionals about how good it is to vote because I was watching this many months ago when I was trying to write something and I considered rewatching it. And I was just sort of like, I don't know if I can survive seeing Michelle Obama on my screen. (laughs) So So that wasn't great. I will say, um, the bit with Lin-Manuel Miranda is very funny because it is basically, yes. Yeah, it's basically like, hey, dude, we find you annoying. 
like you're overexposed and tedious at this point. Shut the fuck up. And that is the bit where he's like, uh, I thought you guys wanted me to just read the fucking text, Lynn. And he's like, uh, okay, so I and he started reading the text. And it's all basically subtweeting uh, the cultural institution that, that he has become. Um, yeah. That stuff, that stuff was kind of cool. It was wild to see uh, Elizabeth Moss, uh, you know, sh- showing up. She's like, we, uh, me and Dolly were the youngest members of the cast, so we're we've been picked to talk to the young voters, which makes no sense. But here we go. Yeah. Uh, that, that stuff was great. Um, I think it is. Giddy, you mentioned the chemistry, and and I, I agree. It's kind of startling how perfectly these actors can fall back into the patter of a Sorkin script and the give and take they have during a scene with their fellow cast members. It's just like I always figure at a certain point you just fall out of practice with a character. Um, And it is weird to see 20 years can go by and it's like these characters have been raised from the dead. It's like seeing people you haven't seen in ages exist. Like it's it's. It's uncanny is what it feels like to me. Like it's the it, – it, in times I was I, – I mean, I think this is why – a large part of why Aaron Sorkin has deluded himself into thinking his style of screenwriting is applicable to any situation at any time is that he wrote a, a drama series about the West Wing in the style of a screwball comedy and all of these actors just knocked it out of the park. But it's because they're very talented actors who clearly fit in very, very well with each other. I feel like part of Sorkin's like issue is that he does not acknowledge that film is like a collaborative process, that it is not just one. There's no one person who is responsible for what you see on screen. It is dozens of decisions being made by dozens of different people. Some like some of them very, very minor, but they all end up creating this thing, this art object that you see. And Sorkin is so like so, like just high on his own supply, huffed his own farts on the the idea of auteur theory that he can't like here when you see him work with actors that he really know his work and really like his work and really believe in his work. You see why we all thought it was the best shit ever for so long. Re- removed from that, as we can see in Chicago 7, there's like a lot of just weird significant issues. There's stuff where if I looked at this script, I probably, were I editing it, uh, cut half the dialogue. You know, like I would just have said that there's no way anyone's going to talk this fast and have it be understandable. But especially seeing it as a staged play where you are not, you don't have the luxury of looking at everyone in full costume or on a full set, that sort of lavish West Wing set they had that felt very familiar by the end. You know, the way they have to do a walk and talk because they have little lights on the stage to indicate that this is the hallway, which I thought was very funny. Um, but it's, you can see how much work the actors are putting into this. And you you really understand. So if I want to understand West Wing as a show, if I want to understand why everyone loved Judd Bartlett, we have to understand that these are some actors who interpreted Sorkin's text and added value to it. I, I think like, I think to a degree, like the misogyny, the casual misogyny of Sorkin's work, I think was obscured by how good Allison Janney in particular was at yes. being CJ Craig, where like yes. she was hilarious. She played these bits off incredibly well, but also it was usually about like, Hey, you know, CJ is kind of the dummy of the group, even though she's also the hyper competent. She's also kind of the dummy. And well, she always and in this episode, she makes someone look stupid for not following procedure, which is something 
I would do, absolutely, if I worked in somewhere as important as the White House and I was press secretary. Uh, if you don't, if you take out classified documents and I don't know where they are, that's fucked up. I'm going to make you look dumb in front of people. You deserve to look dumb. But then she gets her comeuppance for being so uppity and forward. Yeah. And like that is the thing that is obscured by how funny Alice and Janney is and how she can play that as a joke, a joke that she is uh, laughing with at the very yeah. least. But here, seeing it again as an older person, I'm just like, why? She was just right. She was, he fucked up. <laughs> like, so, he just fucked up. Speaking of characters, so the other place, yeah, she was just right. Hmm. Ditto, Donna. Who's mm-hmm. part in this episode? So Hartsfield's Landing is this tiny little town in New Hampshire that votes early, and just due to a quirk of fate, they always predict the eventual election of uh, winner of the general election. Uh, so it's mm-hmm. an open primary, I guess, and you know whoever they vote for uh, ends up being president. So uh, Josh has gotten obsessed with this and wants to win Hartsfield's Landing, and his solution for doing that is to have his assistant Donna call this family that has defected. They've they were Bartlett voters, they're Bartlett volunteers, and now they've gone over and they're supporting the Republican candidate, uh, Governor Ritchie. And Donna calls them up to figure out what's going on here. And there's a point where she comes back inside. And this this is Josh and Donna to a T is uncomfortable emotional intimacy that either needs to be addressed or like closed up in a box. Like it doesn't it doesn't work. And that's that that is a huge problem throughout the West Wing. But the other part of it is Donna is often the voice of the everyman rube who just don't get the politics, doesn't understand policy. And that happens here where she starts trying to tell Josh, why has this group of blue collar folks in New Hampshire defected from the Bartlett coalition? Why are they contemplating the um, why are they contemplating voting for the Republican? And the joke, I think, in the scene to an extent is that. Josh has this command of these issues and knows what knows Bartlett is good, knows the policies are good. And every time he's trying to lay this out and explain why they're doing what they're doing, he's met with just sort of a, like a dumb response of like, but I just want stuff. I just want a job. I just want things to be good. And it's all through the voice of Donna who points out like, uh, no, they're pissed about salmon fishing. Why are they pissed about salmon fishing? There's no salmon fishing in New Hampshire. Well, yeah, but uh, this guy Mackey, he's got a, he's got uh, Flinders, uh, Flinders, has a, um, you know, has a cousin in Oregon mm-hmm. who has lost their job because the canning factory shut down, and he's pissed because uh, free trade meant the local uh, like paper mill or something has gone under, and there's tons of jobs that just drained out of that community, and Bar- and and Josh is responding with. No, we're for free trade. It makes like free trade makes people richer. It makes the economy better. We've we've dedicated money to trade uh, uh, to job retraining. Um, I don't understand like w- like why are they coming at us with this stuff? And in the context of 2020, you watch the scene, and you it's like you can hear the ice cracking under the feet of the Democratic mm-hmm. coalition. Mm-hmm. These these pointed, very simple questions that Donna are asking. Josh has these complicated answers for, but the issues are not, they are simple issues. Tons of people in my community had jobs they no longer do because the jobs have gone abroad. What are you going to do about it? Uh, well, job retraining. Okay, but for what? There's nothing in the area. What do you want me to do? This notion of why do they care about people in Oregon? Because people have families and they, ca- they have connections to other communities that they also care about. 
And so, like, this entire scene... You might say that Josh Lyman is not very conscious of class. (laughs) That's like he accidentally wrote, like, why libs are bad at class consciousness, but he didn't realize that he wrote it. Frustrating. Sorry, go ahead, Rob. (laughs) No, 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 sorry. I was just... I would, like... (laughs) Sorry if my reaction seemed off. Skype, uh, Discord glitched at that point, so I didn't hear what you yeah. said. Um, but yeah, but I, w- I was basically wrapped up there. But basically, like that scene, I think there are tons of scenes like that in the West Wing where it's like, here's a here's a simple rubes approach to politics, and why doesn't this highly competent technocratic administration? Uh, have answers for these questions? It's because these oversimplifications are dumb, and they don't want to engage with them. Mm-hmm. But it's like. You have to, though, like to a yeah. degree, people do not care how complicated it's that it's that Internet ha- hippo, I think, tweet where it's like, uh, you know, the problems are bad, but the causes are very, very good. Very good. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's this is the same position the West Wing takes on the idea of protest. Right. If you were really dedicated to social change and this is relevant for the for Chicago 7 as well, if you're really dedicated to social change, you would get into politics, you get into government, you try to change the system. There's no question of whether or not the system itself is the thing that is corrupt, whether the system is savable. That's an accepted position by everyone on this show already. I mean, it's not surprising because they do work in you know, the federal government. I'm not surprised that people would take this, but there's no interrogation from anyone else of that viewpoint. That viewpoint is always unilaterally accepted as correct. The other thing running through this episode, and I think it's related to this tension, is um, so there's a great scene where Toby and Bartlett are playing, playing chess. And this is a follow-on from an earlier episode where Toby went in on Bartlett and basically argued that Bartlett is making cowardly decisions because Bartlett still has issues about how his relationship with his dad. This is classic, like in Sorkin world, it all comes back to like trauma around your dad frequently. And it just gets writ large. Uh, But in this season of the West Wing, I remembered so much of so much of it hinged on Toby trying to convince Bartlett, hey, man, just show everyone how smart you are. Just be a badass and like show what a true intellectual titan, uh, you know, could do for this country. Except that's not how Toby began. And I think it's not how he ends in the West Wing. Toby begins as kind of a New Deal Democrat in a lot of ways and is less concerned with. Like, yes, he is an intellectual and values that stuff. But at the same time, he's also somebody who's like, no, we need to be providing more direct aid to people. We, the government needs to be doing more things to make people's lives better. And as the series goes along, Toby starts becoming yet another sock puppet to just be like, no, like these technocrats are good. And they're smart and people should shut the fuck up and, and listen to them. And so the episode kind of culminates in him basically like he draws up the game plan, game plan for Bartlett's reelection, which is Bartlett's going to be real smart and people are going to love that. And I'm like, and to a degree, oh, that was kind of Obama. People did like it because Obama was clearly hyper competent and also incredibly, uh, articulate and charming had incredible political instincts that I don't think translated to a political theory. Um, but you look at it and it's like, eh, I think he might need to be able to speak to the people who just want fucking jobs though. And yeah, I yeah. think um, it, that speech fe- felt very pointed just given what election it was just before, you know, the, the specifically uh, Toby saying, make this about qualified and not. 
you know, intelligent and not, which is essentially the campaign strategy that uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris settled on was this idea that Trump is incompetent, true, and that they are competent, debatable. So it felt, you know, the thing about that, though, is like, we don't have a philosopher king like Barack Obama anymore. And a lot of people, a lot of people who voted for him, a lot of people in my specific generation for whom voting for Barack Obama was their first presidential election, they have fallen out of love with his ideologies. So you see this and you're like, I know that it's going to work just because like uh, Barack Obama did get elected, Joe Biden did win. But I don't know if that is really, those are really the allegiances that people had, if that was really the thing that they were voting on. You know, uh, a lot of the time it's lesser of two evils. The idea of hope after, you know, eight years of war, just a fucking endless forever war, horrible economy, bad jobs, that, that was a potent, pointedly political position to take at the time. And it was something that people really needed to feel out of despair. That wasn't about qualified and not. That was about we want to have jobs again or not. Yeah, to a degree, I think his intellectual prowess helped him win the Democratic primary. Uh, mm-hmm. I think his the fact that he wasn't implicated in the Iraq war is like ultimately what undoes Clinton. Um, yes. Like if, if she had not done that, she would have been president. Uh the other thing, though, is I think his ability to definitely handle the racial politics of his moment. And uh, like in particular, I'm, I'm thinking back to as it like as there was increasing focus on uh, the rhetoric of Obama's former reverend, uh, Jeremiah Wright, mm-hmm. and he sort of had to kind of sort of distance himself between uh, like more black liberationist uh, liberationist uh, movements and his his own ideology before he totally mm-hmm. cut ties with with right. Uh, mm-hmm. He gave some really remarkable, insightful speeches about like race in America that I think really resonated powerfully with people. In part because it was exactly the kind of things that like made liberals comfortable and feel good about the direction of of the country. But I think you're right when it came to the general. Like he was the guy who was like, "Hey, I did not burn down the economy, and I'm here to help, and you're gonna get health care." And people were like, <laughs> yeah. "Fuck yes!" And then the reality was, but not good health care. And mm-hmm. I'm gonna, you know, you'll come second behind the behind the banks, behind the investor class. Then we'll we'll, yeah, we'll yeah. see what aid is left in the cupboard. Mm, not not too much. Guantanamo Bay is still open. Uh- <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so like I, I think it was it was a cool special. It was also fascinating to see now in stark relief just how mm-hmm. ideological the show was. And I don't think it knew it was ideological. Like I think genuinely it thinks these sort of technocratic solutions are just good sense solutions. They're not coming from a place of ideology, they're just coming from a pure place of pragmatism. But if you stop and think about it for just even a second, the notion that the best response to somebody who has lost their job as well as all their neighbors have lost their jobs, the notion being, well, you know, maybe you should get job retraining. That should be, you know, in order to live, you should be required to go back to school at age 35, 40, 50 and get a new set of skills and start over. You, like that's ideological as fuck. And yet somehow in the West Wing verse, it's like, that's just, that's just common sense. It's just plain old common sense. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think 
this is one of the best West Wing episodes, but it also showcases all of the limitations of the West Wing as a show. Yep. Um, all those limitations fall squarely on the shoulders of Aaron Sorkin. Uh, last thing I'll say, just this is also not purely a Sorkin uh, joint, as it were. Thomas Schlamm directed this. He stage directed this. So his old collaborator is there in the credits, I think, as the guy who is like helping stage direct. And I've always sort of had the suspicion that um, as long as Schlam was around for the most part, like Sorkin's worst successes tended to be curbed. And then from there, it totally depends on if he has a strong collaborator that he's working mm. with. Um, Fincher was perfect for him, I think, with the social network. Fincher is a lot like uh, Rick start removing Ruben, you know, where he strips things down. <laughs> he stripped everything down from that script. And like he found a way to pacify Aaron Sorkin for when he was getting mad, too. He was like, OK, here, here's a lens. Go do some B-team shoots over there if you want to be a director so bad, you fucking idiot. <laughs> Did you not know, if you watch the, uh, there's a there's a featurette, I own the DVD for Social Network, which a movie I think is brilliant. I think it's very good. Wait, so he, only literally, he literally tells it like, hey kid, go play with this camera. Seriously, he's like, uh, and Sorkin talks about it like he, it was like a reward he was getting. So Fincher obviously clearly knows how to talk to little babies too. Little oh whiny my God, baby. That is so funny. He was like, Jesus. yeah, I was on the set so much making so many suggestions. Eventually, Aaron Sorkin, you know, he let me set up some shots. <laughs> that's that's incredible. That's uh, amazing. And he it's used those skills for yeah. the trial of the Chicago 7. Uh, Gid, I was sort of DMing Wait. with you throughout this. Sorry. We should just cut yeah. to break here. This is probably a good time for a break. Sure. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. And we're back. <laughs> yes. So last night, one Robert Zachney started DMing me while I was having my own jokerifying experience watching the Game Awards. <laughs> and. Robert Zachney, one Robert Zachney, mm. the wise Robert Zachney, had an emotional arc with the movie The Trial of the Chicago 7 that was identical to the one I experienced. So, Gita, you had said weeks ago that, like, yo, this is not very good. This is kind of a mess. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, like, sometimes Sorkin makes messy shit that's kind of fun. Yeah. And at the start, for the first 20 minutes, I was like, where's the mess? I love it. Yeah. Like, it's very silly. It's like <laughs> snorting a rail of pure Sorkin right in the beginning. <laughs> yeah. It's a rail. And that, and that and that is just a pixie stick, by the way. It's yeah. just like, mm, <laughs> yeah, not very hard shit at all. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I was like, this is cool. So the, the, the setup for this, and, and Gia, you can then correct what is being portrayed in the movie with what like is actually the state of play here. Uh, There's so much shit that absolutely changes the, the ways that he talks about the events of the movie that he just fucking made up, completely changed people's personalities. But I will point yeah. them out as we go on. So 
at the start of the movie, though, the setup is we see all these different activists from all over the leftist movements uh, of the of the 60s. Uh, it's it's like early summer, 68. They're all headed out to Chicago to go protest the Vietnam War at the convention. We see there's like the the yippies uh, who were like sort of these super nonconformist uh you know, hip, hippie, hippie groups. Uh, we have more respectable, just like pacifist anti-war groups. Uh, mm, we have groups, generally speaking. Yes. Um, we have uh, Bobby Seale, um, who's sort of representing uh, like black nationalist groups and uh, the Black Panthers. Uh, but he's heading to Chicago for his own protests. Um, we see like more. I guess we'd say like respectable or centrist, like anti-war groups uh, representing more like the Kennedy wing of the party uh, mm-hmm. showing up to protest the the Vietnam War. And they all head off. And then we get a cut to they're all in fucking jail and they're on trial. And we do not actually see what went down in Chicago. We just see them all going off and being warned. What you're describing now feels just like an Always Sunny episode. The gang gets <laughs> The gang goes to a protest. <laughs> <laughs> so the next thing we see is they're all in jail and they're on trial. Uh, like, well, like the intermediate step is they somehow get arrested. We see John Mitchell uh, briefing two prosecutors uh, for the newly elected Richard Nixon being like, fuck these guys up, like throw the maximum book at them and send these guys to jail forever and just show like there's a new sheriff in town, right? Like, the Nixon administration is not going to accept this shit uh, the way the the liberals did. And one of these lawyers is Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who is clearly sort of a like very Kennedy-esque uh, sort of uh, new frontiersman. He's got the little horn-rimmed glasses, et cetera. He's very clean cut. And he's like, oh, I'm uncomfortable with this. But I guess I better go do this prosecution. And then we see the trial, which is just already like basically done as – a who's on first like sketch comedy bit. Like you have this complete mismatch, um, almost like it's a bit like the Muppets in some way, some ways, the way this cast of characters, like all the protest. Sure. Yeah. All the protesters don't get along in really interesting and funny ways. Um, mm-hmm. You have uh, Franklin Gella uh, putting in great work as judge Julius Hoffman, who a guy mm-hmm. who, is clearly a piece of shit, but also very confused about what is happening and is just not yes. up for this and is completely a Diane Feinstein type, you might say. Yeah. And so the first 20 minutes are like just kind of fun chaos with a lot of Sorkin-esque repartee. It's and good courtroom drama stuff. Like the actual yeah. trial is like a totally bonkers, totally like months long trial that was completely acknowledged at the time as being a complete media circus and just a circus itself, an absolute farce. Um, it went on for months. They brought in like Joan Baez and like a live pig at some point. So if it anything is was, weirder than what we see here. It is. It was the trial was much weirder than what was seen here. I know you mentioned later in the movie, when we were DMing last night, later in the movie, Abby Hoffman and um, what's his name? That is his friend. The other, yeah. the other yippie. Yeah, his, bu- his friend. buddy. His, Abby Hoffman and his friend. They show up to the, uh, to the courtroom in judges' robes and it's treated as like this incredible comedy bit. They did not, like the pig that they brought to the courtroom was their nominee for president, Pegasus. 
So I don't know why you would do the courtroom thing, like the the judge outfit thing, which is like minorly funny, and not the the pig running for president thing, which is incredibly funny and also more indicative of their political positions. But that's just a minor quibble I have. Uh. Yeah, and and so the the other dynamic here is that first of all, like uh, Bobby Seale is being denied representation, and he's been tossed into the middle of this trial where he was not he was not even at the protest uh, where all hell broke loose, um, mm-hmm. and he is being advised by Fred Hampton, uh, who's sort of giving him tips on like how to navigate the situation. Uh, we get. Um, Mark Rylance is playing William Kunstler, who's kind of the old shit-kicking activist lawyer who's trying to corral all this into a coherent legal defense. He's and, great. Oh, he's so good. Like, I, I I, think he and Langella, like, make this thing work because so yeah. much of it depends on them both being funny and also being completely believable as guys dealing with the situation for real. Yeah. Yeah, but once you move on from so the the setup to the movie essentially casts these groups of characters as representatives of ideologies, which makes it easier to forgive the way that they they deviate from history because what essentially Sorkin is doing is trying to get a bunch of different leftist ideologies in a room and have them argue with each other. That I'm absolutely signed up for. That sounded good. And for the 20 minutes, this movie is that. Then once you start to dig deeper. You realize that it's not leftist ideologies that are all arguing. It's Aaron Sorkin arguing with everyone who's on the left that is not exactly him. There's a scene early on uh, when people when when we're starting to get to the meat of people's ideological differences with each other. Uh, the character that's played by I was hoping you'd say his name because I forgot Eddie Redmayne's character. Oh, Tom Hayden. So Tom Hayden is the only person that. Uh, Aaron Sorkin consults with. That is wild and explains a lot about this movie. (laughs) Yeah. It explains like, once you learn more about Tom Hayden, I'll get into a second, might explain a little bit less about the movie. But from the perspective, the the way that Tom Hayden is portrayed, it explains a lot in in this movie. But Aaron Sorkin is the the only consumptive with with Tom Hayden, who is portrayed in the movie as a spineless lib, essentially. And it doesn't make any sense like that that is true because... Bobby Seale wrote his own script about his own experiences uh, during this trial, which are harrowing and has been trying to sell it to different studios for many, many years. And no one's picked up. So. Huh. Yeah. Well, and Sark's not going to because those aren't his words. And you must no, let the playwright he- describe <laughs> the bard. So in the scene where the movie for me absolutely started to fall apart, uh, Abby Hoffman, who's played by Sasha Baron Cohen, trying to desperately to do a Chicago accent and not really making it I out. I was texting you, I said, I think he ended up at Elliot Gould. Like, yes, genuinely, like, right. Elliot Gould in um, The Long Goodbye, I think, is who he ends up turning into. Um, yeah, which weird. is, like, I'm just a cool counterculture rebel who, like, yeah. I mean, he might as well have had a martini glass in literally every scene. I mean, the portrayal of the yippies in this movie is absolutely ridiculous. The yippies were the first irony bros, which is true. Like, they levitated the Pentagon. Their disdain for mainstream culture uh, did present itself as sort of a detached remove where the things they did to make their political statements, they were funny, but they were also cruel mockeries of a system they didn't believe in. Uh, Abby Hoffman was the de facto leader of that group. And the way they they portray activist leaders in this group, in this movie is so weird. In the beginning scene where um, everyone's presenting their ideologies, so the students are in a classroom and they're giving a speech. That makes sense. You know, um, 
Bobby Seale is leaving to go to Chicago, but he stopped in at a Black Panther headquarters before he goes, where people are trying to dissuade him from going. That makes sense, right? Those are activities those two people would do. Um, but also to give did. him guns, right? Yeah. Just because Black Panther is just like, we're all about arming our people. So naturally, you should just go and here's a 38, brandish it yeah, in front of the police and see what happens. God. Uh, so the Yippies, what they do in that scene is like, they're at a bar doing stand-up, just doing stand-up. Like, that's what he thinks that leftists do when they get together. <laughs> like, they just go to a bar with a stage and get some people on stage to tell jokes. Like, that's it. <laughs> it's very weird. It's very, very, very weird. These people were serious political organizers. And if you've ever been in a room with serious political organizers, yeah, there will be jokes told, but it isn't a performance. That's, it is about a community. Um well, uh, so there's a scene where Tom Hayden, who has been presented as a very clean cut gentleman, very white bread, he's Eddie Redmayne, right? Like he's his cheekbones and all that shit, um, is scoffing as Abby Hoffman says this trial could possibly lead to a cultural revolution in terms of how we think about the Iraq war because of all the media attention, their viewpoints are getting out there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Tom Hayden says, um, I don't like cultural revolutions because it gets in the way of real revolution, which brings us back to this idea Sorkin has that the system is fine. It's the actors that are bad, which we now know very definitively is not true. The system is fucked. It's completely fucked. And and it's not just the actors who are bad, but also the people who are really wrong are the people who are calling out the system as being fucked and are proposing yeah. like radical institution demolishing solutions where he's like, no, man, if it weren't for you guys, we'd be able to fix these things. But you guys don't actually see what the real problems are. Um, you're just like in so many words, you're virtue signaling. I'm here wanting to actually fix the problems, which coincidentally corresponds to I will advance considerably professionally and amass a considerable amount of power in these institutions and then I'll fix them. So the thing about Tom Hayden, though, like I told my dad about this. My parents haven't seen the movie. I told them it would probably frustrate them, and I don't know if they're going to watch it. But my dad um, participated in the civil rights movement in Selma, Alabama. And as he got older and went to uh, schools in the University of California system, he became interested and, you know, a supporter of the students' rights movement. Um, and essentially, you know, is contemporary with a lot of the figures that are on trial here. Uh, he remembers the trial, you know, it was, happened during his time. Uh, and he told me that he knows, and I looked it up afterward, Tom Hayden is much, much more radical. In fact, kind of a weirdo. In fact, one of the quotes on his Wikipedia page is about how he is so happy that his son married a non-white person because he's hoping for the slow and peaceful dissolution of the white race. <laughs> so he's like, he's bought into the Bullworth uh, philosophy he, no, of he's, political change. He was married to Hanoi Jane. He was married to Jane Fonda. Like, he was a radical Jesus. He was a radical radical, and he is portrayed in this movie as the exact opposite of Abby Hoffman when they have a ton in common. Just, it, it, this fact just makes the whole movie fall apart. Like, you know, like it, it feels like a real weird fucking shame. Real quick, because uh, you mentioned it, the Hanoi Jane thing. For those, for people who are not familiar with weird, um, I don't know, that slur isn't quite the right way to describe the way uh, Jane Fonda was treated. But Jane Fonda had all the makings of like a generational star in Hollywood, like Hollywood royalty, um, like incredibly talented, good looking, had it all, got involved in leftist politics, visited North Vietnam as part of protest to uh, the Vietnam War. And from that point forward, 
just became known as Hanoi Jane. And like, you will still hear people of a certain generation be like, oh, I don't like Hanoi Jane. Uh, because like this, I, in some ways, I think um, she's one of those early figures who gets uh, caught up in the right wing smear machine where somebody mm-hmm. makes an obviously good and valid point. And instead of engaging with any of that, they just get kind of dismissed with this shit. Um, and yeah, the more you Every learn about Jane Fonda, she rules. Every nickname that Trump has given any of his political enemies is born out of the phrase Hanoi Jane. Yeah. Uh, so the other part of this, um, so there's two things I think that happen. Uh, one is that Bobby Seale is eventually dropped from the trial. Uh, and then kind of from the story. And it yeah. kind of feels like the, there's there's two things that happen uh, in really quick succession, it accounts, it accounts for this huge tonal shift in the movie. Um, and you know things about, are about to get real because Abby Hoffman is doing his comedy set. He's expl- he's sort of the chorus, doing a stand-up yeah. bit, narrating the action. Um, just and obviously never happened. And Yaya, um, the actor that is playing Bobby Seale, just want to really shout that out. Um, he's the same actor that played Dr. Manhattan in The Watchmen Show. And he's just absolutely amazing. He's amazing in the scene. Everything that happened in that scene, the 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 way that he is bound and gagged by the judge who is sick of hearing him talk, essentially, just sick of hearing yeah. him speak, that is all true. And the thing that makes it weird, though, is that this is not the emotional climax of the film. No. Um, and we get we get Abby Hoffman being like, I need a minute before I before I tell you what happens next in the middle of the comedy set. And everyone like starts getting the news. And the news, of course, that uh, Fred Hampton was murdered uh, by Chicago police. And that sets up this final confrontation with uh, Bobby Seale who continues to basically no longer comply with the trial in any way, shape or form, uh, because what is happening is unconstitutional. He has no representation. Uh, and he is bound and gagged. And at that point, it's like, at that point, Joseph Gordon Levitt's character, uh, is like, Hey, uh, like I can't be a part of this. Like, this is like, this is illegal. And like, we got to give this guy a mistrial. Um, and so he is dropped from the Chicago seven, uh, slate of defendants and, uh, sort of exits, exits the plot after this, uh, this final showdown, uh, in, in the court, which is, um, a pretty harrowing scene, but it also sets up what the movie is actually interested in. This fucking blew my mind. Sorkin, I kind of wondered, why haven't we seen any of the protests? Part of me was like, mm-hmm. well, Sorkin's a stage guy. He probably doesn't, he's not comfortable with action. We know this. He's, that's never been his, his take. I can imagine he's kind of hesitant to shoot that stuff. But like, it was weird. Why haven't we seen any of it? And the answer is because Sorkin thinks the way to do this is to make it a mystery. What actually happened the mm-hmm. night they were arrested? Mm-hmm. And so we start piecing together the events of what happened in Chicago. And there's a lot of the early clashes with police. We see how the protest movement was infiltrated by informants, et cetera, et cetera. But I've the got to point out really, really quickly, yeah. the, the subplot with Ruben um, sleeping with an FBI informant never happened. Never happened. Just smeared his character posthumously for no reason. But anyway. Yeah. Uh, so, then we get to the trial is beginning to go sort of well for them. They discover that um, Michael Keaton was the former attorney general of the U.S. And he had 
Uh, it's, it's true. Look it up. Michael Keaton was the aging. No, uh, Michael Keaton is playing Ramsey Clark, who was Johnson's uh, AG. And he basically reveals that the Justice Department looked at these protests and decided not to prosecute anybody because their conclusion after investigating what happened at the uh, DNC in 68 was that the Chicago police had lost their shit and had just assaulted protest protesters for days and no crimes have been committed uh, except those by the police. So they, they just ignored the entire thing. And so he testifies to this and it reveals the, this entire trial is a bit of a sham and they're beginning to, even though Hoffman is running this rig trial uh, it's beginning to get some traction. And then Gita, I swear to God, this is where I lose my mind. Mm-hmm. Their defense attorney, counselor, uh, uh, he finds a recording of the night that they all got arrested and Tom Hayden was making a speech. Oh my God. Yes. And it turns out that Tom Hayden said something like, if blood is going to flow, let it flow all over the streets of Chicago. And it's kind of his like, Oh shit, they got you son. That's an incitement to violence. You were inciting. And it's sort of the shocking, and this is this is a Sorkin thing to do. It's always like, what did the person do wrong to get the institution to turn against them? This shows mm-hmm. up in fucking everything. Um, mm-hmm. Early episode of The West Wing, uh, CCH Pounders uh, character is called on the carpet because she calls a Republican. Uh, a, a Republican congressman asks, are you calling me a racist? And she's HUD secretary, and she says, well, if the shoe fits. And they're like, damn, how dare she do that? Doesn't she know she's wow. going to be smarter than that? Um this happens across Sorkin's work. And here, here it is again. What did the person confronting this obviously unjust system do wrong? And in this case, it was Tom Hayden said, let blood flow all over the streets of Chicago. And we get a mm-hmm. flashback to that night. Mm-hmm. But then, and it's like, how could you do this to us, Tom? You fucked it up. You blew it, son. And then Tom Hayden says, our blood. Gita, do you want to explain why this is significant and how this transforms the conversation? So, Abby Hoffman from here. (laughs) God, this is the point in the movie where I started becoming the Joker. Like, this is where it truly began for me. I was already, like, bored and confused by this point and, like, just kind of watching out of sheer momentum, like, wanting to know how they finished it. But here where I was like, oh, this movie is, like, a hateful little piece of shit. Fuck this. Where Abby Hoffman starts saying how he's read all of Tom Hayden's stuff and he often uses vague pronouns when he's, you know, trying or, or leaves out pronouns. He references a specific technical part of speech um, in a very Aaron Sorkin way, in a way that Abby Hoffman never, ever, ever would have talked about anything at all. It's not that he was unintelligent. I mean, most of these people began their journeys as leftists on college campuses and either stayed and graduated or dropped out. Um, but the, he, he starts, it essentially becomes a scene where the only, you can tell what Aaron Sorkin wants is for a figure like Abby Hoffman, a figure of the disenchanted youth, the irony poisoned left to tell him that actually he's cool. Like you get, start to understand as, as Abby Hoffman is being effusively complimentary towards Tom Hayden and forgiving him for the mistake of using vague pronouns, uh, to accidentally and unintentionally incite violence. You realize that this is what he wishes podcasters would be saying to him and about him, about his work. 
All that he wants in the world is for Will Menneker to say that Aaron Sorkin is a cool guy. But, and you can tell also that he wants it to be judged on a very specific kind of merit, very specific kind of like technical and creative merit, where it's like the eloquence of the Hayden's speeches are the things that that are celebrated here in this scene. And it's just like, number one, it's the scene where everyone becomes a mouthpiece for yes. Aaron Sorkin. Everyone, everyone from this moment on just becomes Aaron Sorkin's mouthpiece. It's obnoxious. And two, it's just like, I can, I don't believe now that you actually understand the historical significance of this event. And you've just absolutely just completely misrepresented a lot of history, a lot of important history. Yeah, it's, it's an astonishing, it's an astonishing decision in part because it's like this re- reflects, this reflex to, um, invent a mystery that can be revealed and solved over the course of the trial. Again, like it's a, that's a sturdy plot concept, but this is just not what happened. Like there is no, the, the modifier wouldn't have made us made any difference. Like they still would have said like, well, you said let our blood spill. So obviously we're still implying like, let there mm-hmm. be confrontation. Like it just doesn't matter. And this is how rhetoric works. Like, Mm-hmm. slip of the tongue somehow explains like this is how we got on the hook for this and this is what you meant and that was good protesting but you no, slipped up you got and you on the bad hook for protesting this the cops were looking for someone to blame the fucking like richard nixon and you know, the uh Nick, yeah nixon? nixon yeah yeah the nixon administration specifically like in the beginning of the movie they they, they yeah. actually say to us the audience that the nixon administration is looking to, for someone to blame look you can't retroactively blame Tom Hayden and then be like, oh, but it's okay because Abby Hoffman thinks he's cool. It's like, no, Tom Hayden did nothing wrong. None of those people did anything wrong. They showed up to a protest and are brutally beaten by the cops. That's it. The end. Yeah. And so uh, we move on from there and then we're just like, well, then they get convicted. Okay. They, like literally you see them next. You see they're not in their, their clothes because they were bailed out. They are in prison jumpsuits because they've been, they're, they've been convicted, which we don't see. And now they're getting sentenced. Really sad that we missed out on a scene of whatever celebrity actor that we got to play Joan Baez showing up because they also they put essentially the trial in the intervening months that they don't show became the thing that Abby Hoffman described. It was like they stopped really participating or engaging with the system itself and started bringing in celebrity leftist guests to explain leftist ideology because they knew that the trial was being reported on every single day. So. We don't get any of that. Instead, we got a little bit of sketch comedy uh, from from Abby Hoffman. I will say I don't hate Baron Cohen's performance. Like, he's fine. Uh, but he's fine. But compared to Vincent D'Onofrio in the Abby Hoffman biopic. Oh, I haven't seen that. Night and day. Yeah. I saw that as a child and it clearly imprinted on it. So yeah. uh, it's it's quite good, I would say. Yeah. It's been a while. I, mean, uh, I was like 16 when I last saw it. So maybe it's quite good. <laughs> yeah. I, that, yeah, good caveat though. Like, oh, <laughs> look, as a teenager, <laughs> like a I loved it. Look, as a teenager, yeah. I loved the West Wing, uh, and I still do <laughs> on some levels. But now my love has changed because I'm older. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, so then the movie turns into Dead Poets Society. I'm not even kidding. It turns into Dead Poets Society, and it fucks me up. <laughs> Langella turns to Tom Hayden, who now we know is a good leftist because, like. Abby Hoffman gave him that bro fist and was like, I think you're an mm-hmm. incredible patriot, Tom. It's like, that's beautiful, man. That's beautiful. And so Hoffman is like, you know, you're the only one who's respected these proceedings and respected this trial, respected me. And so if you, you're allowed to make a remark, but if you keep them brief and uh, apologetic, 
that will be taken into account for your sentencing. And Tom is like, okay, so all I got to do is be brief and conciliatory and apologetic and respectful and uh, you'll go easy. And Hoffman's like, yes. And then Tom Hayden just starts reading the names of people who have been killed in Vietnam since uh, since the trial began. 4,000 names. He starts re- reading through them all. And we get the like, you know, the classic Langella's up there being apoplectic. They, I've lost control of the situation. And everyone starts coming to their feet to stand respectfully and cheering as mm-hmm. he names. It's, the- it's a circular pan throughout the room. So you get a brief close-up on this whole crowd's face as they, like a wave, just begin to stand up in the crowd and literally do a slow clap. And then, not only is the crowd full of the supporters for the Trial 7 moved by this, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character stands up respectfully and stands to attention. And his buddy, his corrupt department, uh, Justice Department shithead, is like, why are you standing? And uh, Gordon Levitt turns to him, he's like, respect for the fallen. And... The real message of the Chicago 7, you gotta respect the troops, baby. Yeah. Respect for the troops say, like saves the day. The next thing we find out, so we, we fade out on like this... Move this moment, Reverend's like, damn, we just love the troops. We hate the war, but we just love those troops so much. Let's show respect. That's we're not this is not who you thought the left was. The left loves America, the left loves the troops. And the next thing we find out is all these guys uh were basically let out on appeal. Like they were they were convicted, they were sentenced, and then because the trial was such a sham, the circuit court of appeals threw threw their case out and was like, this conviction uh doesn't hold they'd have to be retried and the justice department was like we can't go through this again we're done and they just they drop all charges but the implication is because tom hayden has this like notebook full of troops names and this moment is so powerful that like this is kind of what kind of saves the day and that's how the movie ends so want to tell you one really important thing there was there were actually there were more than one closing statement and one of them was done by the the pacifist that in the movie where um Dellinger. the old school pacifist the conscientious objector um who they portray as breaking his vow of nonviolence by punching a cop out of frustration which is very frustrating because that character specifically chose to become a conscientious objector and a pacifist because of a fight he got into in college where he punched someone and became very uncomfortable with his ability to commit violence. Um, I, I just want to call it, that, that guy is played by John Carroll Lynch, who I think plays the guy, the, the Zodiac killer in Zodiac. Yeah. Uh, but he's a character actor you've seen in a million things, and he's just yeah. a pro and he does it well here. He's great. Very, I mean, it's a, it's a shame they kind of, they removed him from the movie using that event that didn't even fucking happen and like is completely antithetical to who that person was but he gave a statement um calling out the unjustness of the war and the system that they were being forced to be in like it's it's absurd how by excising um particular facts completely changes the events of this of this trial to conform with Aaron Sorkin's political beliefs. But the people who are portrayed in this movie did not believe the things that he says they believe. And the public and like reaction to this trial was not the way that he portrays it to be. 
Like everybody, while it was happening, even before these statements, they were all kind of like, man, it's fucking weird that a bunch of these people are on trial. It seems like a totally trumped up charge based on nothing. And the fact that it took months only cemented that in people's minds. That scene with the conservatives in the right, right before they get in the, the courthouse, like the most hackneyed scene in the whole thing, where it's conservatives on one side and libs on the other, and they're they're chanting, and they have signs, and they have signs that say, boo, Chicago 7, or yay, Chicago 7. But they're all chanting, all of them, in unison, the whole world is watching. Like, did they get together and decide that? <laughs> see, everyone is watching, and they see the same reality. They, yeah. yeah. It, it wasn't that the whole world was watching. It was that the government was trying to pin the blame on a ride on a bunch of people who were very obviously not there and unrelated. And a lot of yep. people across political spectrums could see that truth. And it only only people only thought it was more unjust the longer the trial went on. And it went on for a very long time. You point you know? something else out there that I think is like literally this movie does not give you any sense of the scale of the uh, assaults on protesters that happened at the uh, Chicago Democratic Convention. You just yeah. like you think the movie would let you lead you to believe that the whole thing happened at this, like at this one protest that these characters were at, where all hell broke loose. But these characters never get anywhere near until the very end. They never get anywhere near the convention. And mm -hmm. like one of the things that made the convention says the circus is like there were just nights of police just beating the shit out of people in the streets of Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. And you would leave this movie thinking all the violence that happened centered around these guys' protests, and that is that's what this hinges on. And not that these guys were scapegoats. For what was described by the Justice Department, I think, as like a police riot. So, yeah, it it's a messy movie. Um, and I think it is. I, I think you're, you're dead on that. This is Sorkin. As he has tried increasingly to try to sort of like reckon with the failures of his um, more conciliatory center left politics, he tries to give a bit more of a hearing to the radical left. But even there, he can't like he can't quite do it because he doesn't really understand them. And his mode of understanding them is to turn them into yet more Sorkin sock puppets who like care about where you went to college and care about shit like sentence structure and mm -hmm. not like the content of uh, your political like, theory. You can't convince me that Abby Hoffman was out here doing fucking sentence diagram on Tom Hayden's speeches. Like those guys linked up because they both opposed like American political hegemony and the the Vietnam War. Yeah. And like the it also frames the leftist position against the Vietnam War as being specifically and only about American casualties. Abby yes. Hoffman and his associated collaborators objected strongly to a, our cultural of uh, our culture of imperialism. They objected strongly yes. to the murder of of, uh, of Koreans and Vietnamese. They objected strongly to war as a construct. It yes. wasn't just about their friends dying, although the draft had a huge part of it, and the draft was a huge part of why the rest of America eventually became, you know, largely in, in opposition to the Iraq. Uh, to it keeps almost saying Iraq, but. Half of, you know, no. half of one, six of the, you know, half a dozen, six of the other. I'm so tired. <laughs> um, but, whatever that phrase is. No, but, but I, I do think like Tom Hayden gives one answer where he was like, you didn't, you didn't enlist. And he was like, yes, I declined to go kill uh, people in Vietnam. That's the closest we get to him objecting morally to what is being done to other people in other places by the U.S. war machine. But beyond that, you're right. It entirely centers on U.S. casualties. And I think a big part of that is 
because the Sorkin worldview and the strain of progressive politics he represents turned out to be very cool with endlessly waging war in other people's countries. And you to, to pull that off, to explain like, and I, I think it's a revealing choice. And I think maybe in some ways it is accurate to like explain what happened to a lot of the anti-war movement as those people like grew up and aged. Um, but Yes, the Viet like protests against Vietnam were about what was being done in Vietnam to Vietnam, and the way it is often remembered is as a protest against basically against the draft, being compelled to serve um, mm-hmm. and possibly be killed in a war. But you know, in terms of well, the war we wage, like how we wage it, that stuff is fine. It's just you shouldn't make people go do it against their will. You know, Agent Orange was always like a huge part of these conversations. You know, right. Chemical warfare was always a huge part of these conversations, right? These were the things that also these these activists specifically objected to. They were right. not shy about it either, you know? And, like, uh, and these just critiques... Think about Muhammad Ali saying, like, I don't have any beef with the Viet Cong. Like, that, yeah. was, that was part of the argument that they're making, that there was no reason to, for Americans to be there. There was no moral reason for us, a more moral justification for us to be committing violence on this scale. And this you know? ends up being the more trenchant critique as technology has changed. Like the reason we shouldn't be at war at all the t- at war all the time is not because you know we talk about Americans coming home in body hit bags, and the toll of war is real and terrible. And uh, there's a lot of uh, people who are not killed in combat in U.S. service who also become grievously wounded and affected throughout their lives by that experience. It's true, but the real like. The, one of the real arguments against waging these types of war is just it is immoral to unleash this kind of destruction and terror against other people in other places who are just trying to live their lives in peace. And if your objection to that is, well, you shouldn't send people who are drafted to do it, then you have – then that is an immoral argument. Well, that's how drone strikes become morally yeah. acceptable. Right. Yeah. You know? Well, we didn't risk any American troops. Yeah. And no, the people we were killed. We killed a whole wedding party, but we didn't risk any American They troops. were other. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. – uh, I think we'll leave it there. I think the movie is it, it's entertaining as an artifact of Sorkinism and a portrayal of his reaction to this to this moment, his attempt to reckon with these politics, but also reveals his incapacity to reckon yeah. <laughs> with these politics. His time has long since passed, you know? Like yeah. he he is no longer a political thinker that we need to pay any attention to, and this movie proves it. Yeah, he's. I mean, really, his best work has secretly been kind of about office politics and the way like people yeah. in institutions address each other. But I not- mean, the Social Network is a great movie about office politics and like some really interesting business journalism. Yeah, <laughs> you know, That's and Moneyball, very similar. Sports uh, Night, like entirely night. about yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, go watch that stuff. Uh, if you if you do want to see Chicago Seven, um, you know it's on Netflix. To turn into the Joker. <laughs> yeah, just you know what you're getting into. Um, <laughs> but we will leave it there. Uh, we will be back with another episode of Holiday Fun uh, at some point soon. I don't know how this is all coming out, but uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, you can you can follow me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. You can follow Gita where at XOXO Gossip Gita Kato. Kato, you can find it Dang. at a underscore Kato underscore Piers. Uh, I took a our, bite at the bat. Uh, sorry, I realized you were eating. And I was like, I'll just cover. <laughs> like this, 
this poor man is so hungry. Uh, he yearns for food. And thank God there's one podcast where you can just munch through while Gita and I will just chat. Uh, so, uh, Kato, I hope you enjoyed, enjoyed lunch. Uh, the theme music is by Too Mellow. Uh, we'll be back with more Waypoint Radio holiday specials. Until then, fuck capitalism, go home. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.